The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and with me today is Susan Steinbrecher. Susan is a consultant, an executive coach, a licensed mediator, a professional speaker, and if that isn't enough, a prolific writer. She's co-author of Heart-Centered Leadership, Lead Well and Live Well. And if that's not enough, she's a columnist on Inc.com, on Entrepreneur.com, a Huffington Post blogger, and she's been featured on more media than I can imagine, MSNBC's Your Business, New York Times, Women's Day, CNBC.com, and the list goes on. Susan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be with you today. All right, so the focus of what we're going to talk about today is Susan's work and experience on heart-centered leadership. And as I work with people who are moving from that expert zone into leading larger and larger scope and scale, and often where they're out of control of the details, I find that the stress levels increase dramatically. When you take on that much responsibility, you have to have strong stamina yourself. Otherwise, you just amplify all sorts of problems. And I think that's what's at the heart of heart-centered leadership. It's about being more mindful as leaders and understanding the impact of self-care and authenticity on the satisfaction and well-being of your workforce and, by extension, the bottom line. So we're going to talk about some aspects of Susan's practice. We won't get all of it, but we'll get in some pieces. We're going to start with stress. And then I want to move to that lovely thing called letting go of control. And finally, we're going to wrap up with some pieces about conflict and managing that in an authentic way. Okay, Susan, first question, secret sauce. What's the secret to getting on top of stress? And is it really even possible? Yeah, you know, thank you. Great question. And honestly, um, I don't know if there's a secret sauce to it, but one of the things that I certainly find is helpful and when I coach a lot of executives, they find it helpful as well is, is first and foremost to be thinking about, you know, what can we do to be proactive? In other words, when we find ourselves in, in high stress situations, um, if we have sort of that reserve to call upon, that what I think of as sort of that bank of um, reserve to call upon when things are really difficult and doing things like meditation, you know, yoga, exercise, eating well. You know, there's four energy quadrants that I think are absolutely critical for a leader to perform at the very best, and that's, you know, mental, emotional, spiritual, and, and uh, physical things, you know, in each of those quadrants. And so it, it really is being as proactive as possible, doing what you can to be grounded. I think... 
in addition to that, I think it's how you view it. You know, to me, an event is just an event. You know, the event is not change. How we perceive the event has everything to do with whether we're going to create the stress response or not. Because the event doesn't change. It's our perception to that event that is what creates all the trauma. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So this is like what we talk about often in um, psychological counseling kind of work that you interpret and it's your interpretation that causes also emotional reactions. Yes. So you're yes. saying the same thing. Yeah, I saw, absolutely. I, you just threw out a couple of things there. I want to go back to you. Talk about the four quadrants of heart-centered leaders, leaders the mental, the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual. This sounds a lot like, to me, you know, doing meditation or yoga or exercise or eating well. All that self-care really sounds like what we talked about 30 years ago we expected leaders to do to sustain their stamina, their ability to walk through crises and not freak out. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's the same thing? Yeah, I think a lot of it is. I mean, I think, you know, today, uh, one could argue that we're dealing with higher stress levels today, and I have some theories about that that I can share, but... Right now, I look at it and say, the more that you're able to take whatever event happens or whatever situation comes your way, you're not going to get to control that. I mean, you don't get to control the fact that, you know, um, all these people are doing whatever they're doing around you or saying what they're doing or whatever it is. But the truth is, what you can control is your response. And what I look at is, do we react or do we respond? What we're looking for is a response versus a reaction. A reaction is we're emotionally triggered, that creates sometimes, you know, there's a thought about the issue that creates a certain behavior. That behavior has an impact. And so I think, you know, when I think about the four energy quadrants, when that falls under our seventh principle of heart-centered leadership, which is all about, you know, taking care of the heart specifically, um, we're looking at, uh, you know, how do you mitigate the risks of things that happen around you? How do you respond more effectively? And if you're not feeling well personally, I mean, if you're not healthy yourself, you're probably not going to be up for the level of energy that's required to be a good leader today. Okay, so now, suppose I don't love meditation or yoga. Am I doomed? Are there other practices that are going to get me through this? Yeah, of course. There's, there's plenty of other practices. Sometimes just something as simple as deep breathing. The whole point is to slow the system down, the nervous system down. I mean, you know, we have a sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system going on, and often what's happening is internally the, the response is we have one foot on the brake and one on the accelerator at the same time. Well, that you can just visualize how that would not work, <laughs> okay? So we need to do things to get ourselves more grounded. Um, and so that's what I mean by doing those types of practices help with that. But simply sitting down and taking deep breaths for three to four minutes, you will notice a shift because you're calming the nervous system down. It allows you to work at a different part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex or other parts of the brain. That's where the critical thinking comes in versus being hijacked by the emotion, amygdala and other parts of the brain that, that, um, that are accessed during that which does not allow for good thinking. It's, it's a reactionary thing again, and it doesn't serve us very well. Okay. All right. So the secrets are I keep myself in good health so that I have reserves to call on. And that means that I eat well, I sleep well, I exercise, I do all those things that we know manage health. And then I need to be, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, what I'd also say about that is, and in addition to that, it's it's how you're viewing the situation again. And, And also look at it as how... Um, you know, electronics today in particular is, is 
it's, it's just everywhere, right? We can't get away from <laughs> phones and, you know, texting and all this other stuff. And, and I think that's creating a huge issue for us. But the truth is they're tools. And like all tools, they're meant to be picked up at times when they need, and they're also being meant to be put down. And unfortunately, what's happening a lot, I think, in our society is people aren't putting them down. I mean, they don't feel they have the permission to put them down or, oh, my gosh, I need to click away and check how many emails that I have in the last five minutes. It's become addictive, unfortunately, (laughs) I think. But that's what's creating, I think, even more issue for people. In addition, I always like to say to folks, listen, you know, when you look at a situation and you find yourself getting freaked out, to your point, what, if you can answer the question, what is the worst thing that can happen in this situation, and you can go there and deal with that, then you, you'll calm down immediately because it's like, look, if this is the worst that can happen, I can handle that, I'm good. It's, it's the fear that's creating, like, the fear of the unknown or, oh, my gosh, what if this happens? Well, let's just deal with it. What is the worst that can happen here? Let's list that out. Often it's nowhere as bad as we're imagining it to be. Okay. So that's that notion of not getting hijacked by the emotions. Right. By being able to stay grounded and to think about what do we do. And, you know, when you start thinking about what's the worst that can happen and how am I going to deal with that, that puts you into the re- the action mode as opposed to the um, re- reaction mode. Yeah. Okay, so I want to come back to this notion of how you view it. I love your statement that it's just an event, and it's how we perceive it that creates the trauma. Okay, so there's a crisis. My boss yelled at me. I feel like everything is caving in on top of me. I'm overworked, overstressed, too many emails, all of that. In that moment, how am I going to change my view? Yeah, that, that is, again, where I go. This is where you need to calm the system down, first and foremost, because if you're in that high drama state, you can't think clearly. You, you, you really can't. I mean, the brain and the, you know, the, the heart, the combination, it's not working. <laughs> it's not going to work. So this is where I don't care if you've got to go lock yourself up in a stall, you know, you know, a bathroom stall, but you need to remove yourself from the situation, start taking the deep breaths, Get your body, your system calmed down. Then I also like to use a lot of things like journaling or writing. So, for example, pull out a pad of paper and say, wow, why am I so freaked out about this? What is going on with me? And then just write. And that's kind of releasing energy as you're writing this stuff down. And when you just keep writing and keep writing and keep writing as you're asking those questions. What I find when I do something like that, I will come, the answer will get revealed here. Oh, I get it. I'm being triggered. Oh, what does that remind me of? Oh, that sounds like something that happened to me, you know, 20 years ago. I just got hijacked on this event, but it's reminding me of that event, which is creating, I mean, it's just getting it out of the system and being able to calm the system down enough to where you can start thinking clearly and being more rational. So that's something, literally the deep breaths, counting to 10. Now, if you're in the middle of a meeting with a person and you can't just go excuse yourself, I always say buy time. And what I mean by by time is move the conversation off of you and back on the other person. So it would sound like this. Interesting comment. Thank you. Tell me more. Well, the tell me more takes it off of you and back onto the other person. You're listening. And as you're listening, you're taking your deep breaths, you're collecting yourself or whatever. If you don't do that, then you're going to probably say something or do something you're going to regret. So this is by the time 
to literally tell me more about that. I'm not sure I'm understanding. I'd love to hear more. And that's not easy to do. But if you do that, it deflects the energy off you and puts it on the other person. Fabulous. Um, I love your notion of journaling and writing, and I have to say I find it incredibly helpful personally as well as in my practice. I often advise people to do that. Lots of people say to me, though, that they want to go and talk with a friend. And while that seems comforting, I find it often winds people up rather than unwinds them because your friend is on your side and just say, yeah, that's awful, that's horrible, that's terrible, I can't believe they did that. What's your view? Are you better to write or go talk to somebody? Uh, You know, it's a really good point, and and that might be a, a bit of an individual choice, but the writing out to me really helps release the energy in a proactive and a productive way. Um, so I really do like that. The talking to friend, I understand that, and I think I would I would be very careful about who you're selecting as the friend. If if you have somebody with enough emotional intelligence who can literally be a sounding board and ask questions that's going to move you towards a solution, you know the empathy is appropriate to start with, but that doesn't serve the person to your point to sit in that stuff. It's only going to make it worse to keep going over and over and over again about how terrible the situation is. Instead, it's like, listen, I can see that you're really upset. What is one or two things you can do that's going to help you move out of this situation? So if you have someone astute enough to do that, which frankly most of people aren't, then I would, I would definitely fall back on the journaling. Okay, fabulous. All right, so if I come back to your notion that you can't control what comes your way, but you can control how you respond to react to it. And that the moment I move to a proactive response that's not an emotionally triggered one, I'm going to have clarity of thought and so forth. And the way to get to that controlled response is by my deep breathing, is by buying time, is by journaling and writing. Maybe it's by talking to people if they can help move me to a considered thoughtful response and action rather than wind me up. Okay, I want to shift for a minute and talk about mental models. You have this notion that the mental models we carry in our head affect um, how we react in particular situations. Explain what you mean by that, and how do we use them? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, it's probably helpful to clarify what I mean by a mental model. So my definition, there's lots of definitions out there, which is why I want to clarify first. To me, a mental model is a prevailing belief that you have taken on over time. So we all have had life experiences. Based on those life experiences, we have come to believe things. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. You know, I could argue all day long that the belief someone took on isn't right, but it's true for them, so therefore it exists for them. And those mental models really shape who we are, how we show up in the world. It shapes our leadership style. It shows up, it will shape our parenting style and all kinds of things. And so that's what I mean by the mental model and being aware of those that are really what I would call running you. It's sort of the um, unconscious drive that's driving your behavior. Getting in touch with what that is is so helpful because I find when I work with clients, when we do that process and our coaching process, they're not conscious of what is really driving the behavior. They have been given feedback on behavior that say that's working and not working, but they don't really understand where it's come from and how that can be shifted, but it can't be shifted until there's consciousness about what's really running the show here. So that's what I mean by a mental model and how, that, how that's important to under, determine it. 
Okay, so take that out of the conceptual and give me an example of a mental model and how that would be running someone. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, I guess one of the things that comes to my mind is a client I worked with, and, and he always pops up because it was one of those pivotal moments in his life when he really recognized for the first time what was going on. So here's a gentleman I'm coaching. I received his resume, his bio resume, and I was really struck by the fact that he had five advanced degrees, which is a lot. You know, that's a whole lot for anybody. But, you know, then I started looking at, well, what are these degrees in? And, of course, I'm immediately going, why, why does one feel the need to do this, right? So now I'm looking at those degrees, and this is not, bas- you know, basket weaving. And this is nuclear physics and biochemistry, which is also, okay, these are challenging degrees to get. Well, then on top of it, what was even more stunning to me is when I share with you what his occupation was. He was a chef. So wow. immediately one says, for what purpose do you need five advanced degrees, those kind of degrees completely unrelated to your profession of choice? Well, when I did his background life story, we came across a belief that he took on when he was about three years old. Again, totally unconscious to him. Um, he would have told me he has a thirst for knowledge, which I get with the five degree, advanced degrees, but what happened is he went to put his finger in a light socket, and his dad grabbed his hand and said, don't do that. What are you, stupid? And so the mental model was, I'm stupid. So he never connected that event, that belief, that mental model that he took in had anything to do with his current behavior, and especially his leadership behavior, since I was coaching him from a business uh, perspective. So what we did is we said, well, how has that old belief served you well? Because it has, and he could give me the whole list, because we want to honor how it has served, because they do in some way. Now, how has it not served you? And he could give me the whole list. But then we reframed it, because that's what's most helpful. Consciousness is one thing, but if you don't do something about this, then who cares, right? So the reframe on that became, I'm smart enough. Now, what's really important is when I did his 360-degree interview, meaning I'm interviewing people all around him, direct reports, peers, boss, etc., they told me in that those interview processes that he dominates conversations, he doesn't listen, he almost wears his resume on his sleeve. So there was about a 95% correlation to his leadership behavior, how he was showing up every day that was not working well for him, back to that mental, old mental model of I'm stupid. So when we reframed it to I'm smart enough, I said, okay, now visualize yourself in, let's say, a meeting setting, and you're going to fast forward in time and imagine you truly believe this. I know you don't at the moment. I want you to imagine it, because I have to extract behaviors out of this reframe so he has something to practice. So I said, okay, now sit down in this meeting, and you truly sit in this meeting believing I'm smart enough. Now tell me what you're saying, doing, and what's happening around you. And he could say, I'm not sitting at the front of the table, I'm sitting in the middle of the table. I actually asked and delegated someone else to lead this meeting. I'm not the one offering comments, I'm asking others what they think. He could tell me those behaviors. So with enough practice of that, they start to adopt the reframe mental model. So that's probably one of the best examples of someone who had such a big transformation and a big light bulb moment when that was shared. Boy, do I see this in practice all the time. I have a client... um, who had this model in his head that he had to make his parents um, say how proud they were of him. Yeah, yeah. And it was undermining his confidence Mm -hmm. because the belief is that my parents aren't proud of me. 
in one way or another. And getting him to reframe what would constitute having his parents be proud enough of him mm-hmm. completely changed his view about his own level of confidence. Oh, that's great. That's great. I have others that I'm not so successful with, I will say. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) Okay. So your way of getting somebody to reframe their mental model, and first off, we've got to become aware of them, and sometimes they're not so easy to identify and surface. Right. But then to reframe it, I've got to imagine myself in a different situation where that mental model isn't applicable, and then move from there to how I would behave differently as a leader if I really didn't carry that model. Yeah, so what we're doing really there is we are, we're saying, okay, let's, through the life story, we're able to extract, you know, what they are, and then we are saying, here's how you're showing up, this is the impact of that, how is it serving you, how is it not serving you, and then that reframe is, it's giving them the opportunity to practice behaviors that that are not in their toolkit right now, that's the point of the reframe. And then that is to say, if you are walking down this path and you are really practicing these behaviors, how would that serve you more effectively? How does that shape your leadership style? What impact is that creating? So that's the whole point of doing that type of process. Is that, did that answer your question? Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well. Okay. Now, you also have this notion, how does this impact stress and resilience? And the bottom line, by the way. Yeah, well, really, it impacts a lot of stress and resilience on my mind um, because when you think about it, is if you are clear about what is really running you, <laughs> running the show is what the way I like to stress that, um, that's really running you, then when you find yourself in those moments where you're putting, you're acting out that old mental model behavior, you now have some consciousness and can catch yourself and say, okay, step back. You know, it takes a while. I mean, I may be coaching someone that's 55 years old. They've had, you know, 50 years plus of an old behavior, right? They need to catch where they are. Up, got it. I'm going down the old path. I need to flip the switch. What are some behaviors that really fall into the reframe category? Until that's fully integrated, it's going to be that sometimes one step forward and, and two steps back. That can be stressful for people. But just the fact that they're in the middle of that and they recognize that, it helps them deal every day um, more effectively with whatever their situations are, both personally and professionally. And the okay. resilience factor to me is all about if you're willing to walk the path, which is this courageous journey. I mean, looking in the mirror and owning who you are, the good, bad, and the ugly is a courageous path for people. Um, if you're willing to do that, and every time you gain success by, again, getting conscious, catching where you are, flipping the switch, changing some behavior, practicing something else, you're building that resiliency quadrant in my mind. I mean, that helps you be a better leader in the end. Great. It helps you lead other people to do it. Okay, Susan, we're going to take a break here. Um, Just to kind of quick recap all that we've been talking about, the general notion is that you want to be able to be under control of the response. You can't control the events that happen, but I can control how I respond to it. I don't want to be hijacked by the emotions or by my mental models or by my old triggers and behaviors. I want to be able to clear my head and think. To clear my head and to think and reduce the stress at the moment is to calm the nervous system down, and that means things like deep breathing, journaling, buying yourself a moment in time, maybe having a confidant who's good at talking you off the ledge. 
It means equally doing the background work on the mental models and understanding how those models are running you, running the show, as you say, and having the courage to take a look at them, look at the alternative actions, see the implications and see the consequences, and to do that on a daily basis until the new habits become, new patterns become habits. All right, so we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the next challenge, which is how do you learn to let go of control, particularly when you were the expert and you knew how to be in control and now you don't. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Susan Steinbrecher. Susan is co-author of Heart-Centered Leadership, Lead Well and Live Well. She's an executive coach, a licensed mediator, a speaker, and a prolific writer. Inc.com columnist, columnist, an entrepreneurship.com contributor, and a Huffington Post blogger, just to name a few. So we've been talking about Susan's notion of heart-centered leadership and that I have to take care of myself in order to be able to lead effectively. And that the big part about this is in managing stress, what I want to be sure to do is that I react proactively, not just respond from emotional space. We've talked about techniques for doing that, and in particular, the mental models that we carry in our background that cause us to um, react in ways that are not constructive. Okay, so Susan, in my coaching practice, I bet I spend at least 50% of my time tactically in talking to people about letting go control, particularly when I'm working with experts who are used to knowing everything that is going on and how to do it, 
and particularly when working with women who tend to be perfectionists to begin with. So how do you help people learn to let go? Well, you know, this is a struggle for, for many, many people, to, like you mentioned, and, you know, it can be for me as well. I think we're all human, and there's that tendency there, too. I guess one of the things I like to do is invite um, my coaching clients, when, when I'm coaching them on this topic as well, is to say, I want you to really hear my words when I say this, and I'll say to them, you are robbing people of the opportunity to grow and to develop when you don't let them do the things you're doing. So if they genuinely care about their people, which most of them say they do, they want to increase the bench strength on their team, they want people to rise to the occasion and be promotable and all of that, how on earth will that ever be possible if you're the one in all the meetings, you're the one in all the calls, you're the one CC'd on everything? You know, it's not going to happen. So first of all, look at that. It's a little bit of a paradigm shift of you're not serving yourself or anybody else when you find that when you have to be the person always in the middle of everything. So there's that, trying to help people just see that. You know, secondly, this goes back to what I brought up earlier is I do sometimes say, listen, what's the worst that can happen if you're not at that meeting? What's the worst that can happen if you're not on that conference call? You know, we think things are a big, big deal, but when we ask that question, we often go, okay, no one's going to die. The earth isn't going to end, right? So, yeah, maybe I don't really need to be on that call. And they have to feel the tension they're going to have and the anxiety they might have about the withdrawal of not being in that meeting and allowing somebody else to do it. But they're going to have to do that or they'll have no sense of life. Um, I was working with a client even today, and, you know, she's, you know, everything is CC'd to her. And I said, are you seeing this stuff anyway? I mean, if you have 400 emails in your box today, are you even seeing all the emails that have been, you've been CC'd on? She's like, well, no. And I said, well, then what's the point? You know, really, you're not going to see it anyway. You're not going to get to it anyway. And then that's why she's up to 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, trying to get emails cleared on stuff that doesn't even make any sense. Um, so in this case, I said, listen, you, you have to have productive people, and I know that. You need to pick one person in each department. That's the go-to person. You meet with that person once a week. You hear from that person what, what is going on, you know, top level. Where do they need your help? What's happening? You don't want to be blindsided. Of course, tell them no surprises. Not, don't blindside me. But you don't need to be in the day-to-day minutia of it. And she's doing that now, and it's re- she's really starting to um, experience some great results as a result of that. So that's very good. We had, there was, uh, just this week, I had a conversation with someone who says, but I am so important to the company. If I happen to walk away, mm-hmm. nobody can do this. Wow. And to which my <laughs> response was, there is no job in any company that will not, the company will just pick up and move on. They may do a particularly bad job of it, but they will pick up and move on if you fall out of the equation. And that doesn't matter, CEO or any role. We do kind of make ourselves a little over-important on occasions. Now, I've worked with a bunch of people who get this conceptually, but whose managers above them are detail freaks. Mm -hmm. And so the manager comes down with, what's the answer to X? And the belief is you have to know right now the answer to X. What's your advice in that case? Well, love what you just said. The belief is you have to, and that's not necessarily the truth. So the first is the person needs to get out of this belief of 
I have to have the answer right now. No, you can say, I don't have that answer, but I'll get back to you within 24 hours or two hours or whatever it is, depending on the urgency of the situation. And most people see that as a reasonable request to say, can I get back with you in an hour? I need to look into that a little bit deeper. Um, So that answers that part of it. But just to say, to me, you're not going to be able to be on top of all of it anyway. If you're really needing that level of detail and minutia of every single thing going on in your company or this person I was telling you about that I'm coaching really is running seven, seven departments, there's no way she could be on top of it anyway. Um, so this is where she's going to have to rely on somebody else. She does need to manage that, of course, with expectations of how often are we going to communicate but so the first really is, you know, if you don't know, you don't know, and you go find out. It's not a criminal act if you don't know on the spot. And the second is, who is your go-to person who can fill that in? And the best would be to say to the boss, actually, the person who would answer that best is so-and-so on my team. Why don't I make sure that person follow up with you? That would be the beautiful thing. <laughs> but we don't, we're afraid to manage up, and that's what I call it. Managing up effectively is very, very important. We think because the boss said something that we have to respond at this very minute. That is often not the case that's in our head, not necessarily in their head. Yeah. In this particular case, I think it was a bit in the boss's head, and I think the boss had an incredible capacity to hold a lot of details. Mm-hmm. However, his boss was really frustrated with that behavior. I bet. So part of the piece that she was missing was she had an ally two steps up. She just uh, needed to call on that ally for some advice and counsel and support. Perfect. Perfect. So, and that, that often is the case, right? I mean, most of this stuff is in our head. I mean, it's like I hear people say all the time, I don't have time to, you know, especially with the Heart Center Leadership book and the principles and the things that we we talk about, taking time to point out something that an employee did that was very positive versus every time you talk to them, it's a a guidance and feedback conversation. They said, well, I don't have time for that. I said, okay, we're going to have a conversation and and I'm going to time it. You know, so we have the conversation and it took, of course, two minutes. And I'll say, how long did that take? I'll say, oh, well, I would guess I was about five minutes. Well, actually, that was two. The reason I do that is we are so out of whack with reality of what actual clock time is versus our perception, and this is one of those situations, too. We don't feel that we have the right to say, I don't know, or I'll get back to you in a matter of a couple of hours or, or tomorrow, whatever it is, because we don't feel that's reality. We feel the reality is I have to know at this moment, and that's just not the case. So I always challenge people, is this reality, real clock time we're talking about, or your perception of this? That goes right back to what you were saying in the very first, where you're talking about the deep breathing, you know, three to four minutes. And even I find sometimes two minutes is good enough. But when you sit down with people and have them actually quietly breathe for two minutes while you time it, they feel like it's 15. Exactly. They just think it's absolutely impossible. It's two to four minutes. It's nothing. They're shocked. <laughs> you're right. They're shocked. I noticed that too. And they're like, oh my gosh, I feel so much more grounded and seriously that was only a three minute I'm like yeah that was three minutes everybody has three minutes I'm sorry you know no excuse everybody has three minutes in my mind (laughs) plus the time that saves when you don't compound the reaction to 15 people beyond you um, makes up for the three minutes without a doubt that's right okay so 
you've talked a little bit about the journey of how you get people through this process of recognizing that you don't have to be in control. Are there any particular steps that you've got to walk people through? Any guidance you can give us there of one, two, three, four? Um, you know, I don't know if it's a one, two, three, four as much as it is. They need to put a strategy together that says, how am I going to start getting off the CC and how am I going to get out of some of these meetings and conference calls? You know, so for example, with this um, client I was telling you about that I talked to even today, so she's re- she, you know, she met with her team, you know, once a week she brings all those seven departments that she manages, those leads of each of those people together, you know, go around the room, who's doing what, what's the situation, what do I need to know um, kind of thing. And then it's like, uh, she, you know, she announced, she says, there's, there's no reason to CC me on things. Um, so she did that. She had, you know, meetings with them to say, hey, you know, Mary, let's say was her name, a direct report. Mary, I'd like you to attend that meeting. Why don't you come back and brief me after? How did it go? What did you see? What did you notice? So you're building in that safety mechanism so it's not a complete jump off the cliff. But there's a safety mechanism there where they will come back and debrief or provide some information. And you'll be able to monitor through actions like that whether the person is, is, is tracking well or not. And if not, that's, you know, that's where you coach them you know, to be successful. But that's the kinds of activities that I ask people to be thinking about where they're not the one controlling everything and they're actually delegating more their their trusting more people, which is really what we're talking about when you think about it. It's really about trust. Um, And when people feel that, wow, this person trusts me, they don't want to fail you. I mean, they they don't want to disappoint you. So they're going to rise to the occasion. And of course, there's there's some, you know, examples where maybe that's not the case. But for the most part, when people feel entrusted, they don't want to let you down. So they're probably going to rise rise to the occasion more than you could have imagined. I always say people perform down to your expectations. If you micromanage, you will get behavior of people who don't think, why should I bother? And that's exactly what you're saying here. Okay, we're going to... We're going to take a break. Susan, I think the thing that strikes me out of this notion of letting go control is your opening statement, which is when you have to be in every meeting, in every call, in the middle of everything, CC'd on everything, you are robbing people of an opportunity to grow and develop. And we're right back to where we started, which is to ask, what's the worst that's going to happen if you don't read that email or don't go to that meeting? And we're back to the notion of, can you deal with that? And how are you going to deal with it? And what's the proactive as opposed to the reaction from an emotional space? All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about structuring authentic conversations, particularly when there's conflict. And this is one more part of how do you get yourself out of the middle of things if someone is upset with what's happened. With me today is Susan Steinbrecher, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., 
helping organizations get it and keep it. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Susan Steinbrecher. Susan is the co-author of Heart-Centered Leadership, Lead Well and Live Well. She's a coach, a licensed mediator, a speaker, and a prolific writer. So we've been talking about how to be ensure that you respond to various events that happen that you can't control, but that you respond in a grounded, cognitive, proactive way rather than respond from an emotional way. Gotten lots of tips from Susan about how to do that, and we've also been talking about how do you get out of being in control, and it's the same process, that you learn to respond in a very measured way, and you ask yourself, what's the worst that's going to happen, and give people an opportunity to develop. Now, I want to go to the next part of all of this, because the moment that I turn something over to somebody else, something's going to go wrong, and then somebody's going to become yelling at me, and there's going to be this heat in the room, tensions of somebody disagrees with X, Y, or Z, and we have conflict everywhere. I happen to personally believe that it is one of the most important survival skills for the modern matrix organization. Yet people either avoid conflict or they're way too direct, and in the result, they damage relationships. So, Susan, based on your work, what's your way of structuring a conversation around an issue of conflict? What does that look like? Um, so, to me, I have sort of a process before you have the conversation and then one while you're having the conversation. Part of the things that I like to share with people, and this is something that, you know, we're very passionate about and we're producing a lot of material and assessments around because I see such a huge need as you too. Some of the things that you're doing prior to the conversation with the person is to sort of rehearse in your mind, how do you want this to go? So let's visualize the absolute best outcome for you. What does that look like? Get in touch with that because if you can't even visualize what you want, you have no shot of getting there. So that's part of the before conversation you're doing. You're also before conversation sort of maybe with a confidant, maybe role play and interaction with that person to say, this is how I think they're going to respond. This is where I, this is, this is the way they typically talk and I want to be able to work through that. Would you role play with me? So the more that you do that, the more you're actually rehearsing the conversation in advance. The brain does not know how to decipher real from imagined. So it feels, you feel more confident in the conversation when you've done rehearsal ahead of time. And you're also looking at things like, what will I predict their response to be? How do I want to respond in, uh, as well? So there's things you do even before, okay? So now you're in the conversation, let's say. There's two primary needs that we need to be very, very aware of that all of us as human beings have. Um, and one I call that ego sort of personal need, and the other is what I call the practical need. The practical need is, what is the purpose of the conversation? What is the issue you're trying to get resolved? What is the problem that you're trying to solve or question you need answered? The personal side is this human being and how does this human being best respond? And in a conflict situation especially, 
you're going to have anxiety up, defensiveness up, um, stress levels up um, to begin with, depending on, and especially, and depending on the relationship you already have with this person. Is this the 16th conversation you have with this person, and they have all that infrastructure that they're, they're um, uh, basing this new conversation off of, like all that history, or is it the first time? That's going to make a difference. Um, but the personal ego need is they need to feel valued, appreciated, respected, listened to, cared about, right? All of us have those two primary needs, the practical need and that personal ego need. So when you go into an interaction, we have a six-step process that takes you from the beginning of the conversation to the end. And while you're going through those six steps to resolve the issue, we also use what I call the three golden rules. And those three golden rules are, and that is to meet that personal ego need side, and they are things like listening with empathy and esteeming this individual every way that you can, not inauthentically, but ways that are legitimately things that they can be complimented on or esteemed with. And the third is involving that individual, asking for their ideas, their help, etc. Those three things will meet that personal need, which will keep the person way more engaged and in the game versus if we don't take care of that side, as you're going through the conversation, the defensiveness goes up even higher, they'll check out, it, gets, it just gets ugly quick. So thinking of the, using those three golden rules as we go through the path of our conversation, I always like to start the conversation with being really clear about what I'm there to speak about. Cannot tell you how many times I've had people come to me and say, I still don't even know why this person's talking to me and we're 10 minutes in the conversation. Because we're avoidant of the stress of the conversation, we're not clear. So you need to start off with the reason I wanted to speak with you today and thank you so much for meeting with me. I know that you're very busy. See, we're showing respect, showing respect. And is I wanted, to ch- I wanted to see if you would work through an issue with me that I'm having and I'd love your help. Okay, so now you're approaching the issue. You're spelling out what the particular issue is, but you're also using those golden rules. So you're going to start off on the right foot if you do it that way. The second is describing to the person the impact of the behavior, whatever that behavior is. Is it, is it affect customers? Does it affect you? Does it affect the team? Does, what does it affect? What's the impact of the behavior? The third is to ask the person, what do you think is going on here? What is the cause of this? So you're asking, not telling them your, or your assumption of what it is. You're asking. The fourth is to ask them, what did they think are the solutions to it? And the fifth is to summarize and agree upon those solutions. So let me make sure I heard you correctly. What you're going to do is A, B, and C, and what I've agreed to do is X, Y, and Z. And then the final is to thank that person again. Thank you so much for working through this with me. I knew if we put our heads together, we could make that happen. Again, we're using golden rules. And can we follow up to make sure this is working for both of us um, and that kind of structure? So. Along the way, of course, you're having conversation with them too, but in terms of a platform, it helps you get from front of conversation to back of conversation. Again, using those golden rules at every opportunity that you can, which reduces anxiety and stress and keeps them much more engaged and in the game. Wow. Strikes me, Susan, that this works as well in structuring a feedback conversation around a difficult message with a subordinate as it does structuring a peer-to-peer conversation around a heated conflict. Yes, and even at home. I mean, I'm not kidding. When you think about the process, it truly is nothing more than a problem-solving process. 
But what happens is people will sit down with somebody. They don't get that there's this whole personal need that needs to be met. And they go for the gusto, right? We need this problem solved and we need it now. Well, that person immediately gets their back up. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So if you're not along the way empathizing with the emotion they're expressing, thanking them for their input, thank you, those are great ideas, I'd love your help with this, if you're not doing that, then they're not going to be emotionally even keeled enough to get through the conversation with you. And I think we've all experienced that, both home and at work. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> in every aspect of life. Yeah. I also love the fact that you start with what is it that we're really talking about. I can't tell you how many times I have watched or had a feedback conversation replayed where the feedback recipient has no clue what the topic was even about. Yep, I see it all the time. I mean, it's even gone so far if I've had employees like contact me after and say, I think... I've been fired, but I'm not sure. Wow, really? Okay. So what's happening, I mean, that's taking you to an extreme in our coaching counseling, but it's a situation where we're afraid to say the words. So we confuse the issue by not being honest enough to say, listen, you know, I know we've been working on this together. We've had three or four conversations. The job is just not a match for you. You are brilliant at A, B, C, D, and E. I think you can offer A and A M Y and whatever that is, and I would love to see you be successful. This is not a match for you, and therefore your employment is going to be terminated. I will even help you find the next job. You know, you can even terminate in a nice way. Is my point? Fabulous, Susan. Susan, thank you for being with us today. This is a great discussion. The book is Heart-Centered Leadership, and if you'd like a copy of it or you'd like to know more about it, Susan's website, heartcenteredleadership.com, is the source to go to. I think the whole thing that strikes me out of this conversation is the notion, Susan, of staying grounded and responding not from an emotional space, but from a calm and centered space. We've talked about dozens of ways of doing that, including how do you give the messages, how do you have the conversation, how do you let go of control all of which, and examine your mental models, all of which let you stay calm and centered. So, Susan, again, thank you very much. Oh, you're quite welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. All right. Next week, I'm going to be with Colin Rustin, and we're going to talk about how do you create a collaborative, inclusive, authentic relationships among your teams, even when you start with people who don't necessarily love each other to begin with. Join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.